Hey guys, it's Jason Webb. This is the show that highlights local business leaders and the movers and shakers of Minnesota. Welcome to Minnesota Made. What's up, Minnesota? It's Jason Webb. And my guest today is my friend, Matthew J. Bialik. Did I get that last name right, Matt? You did, and most people get it wrong, so uh, kudos to you for getting it right. Yeah, yeah, thank you. All right, so a little bit about Matt. I'm looking at his bio on his website right now, so let me give you the uh, quick uh, 30 seconds about Matt professionally. It says, Matt is a banking and commercial law attorney who provides litigation, transactional, and advisory support to banks and businesses. And some of the uh, bullet points under that, some of the services that you specifically do have have to do with drafting all manner of loan documents, negotiating forbearance agreements and workout plans upon initial default, bringing lawsuits and obtaining judgments, decrees and or receiverships, Last one. There's more on here, but I'm just going to read one more. Pursuing traditional and complex post-judgment collections. And uh, check out his website. It is mjblawmn.com. So that's Matt on the professional side, which is, you know, relatively new to me, I guess. I feel like I know you better, Matt, more on the personal side because uh, I'll just let the listeners know that we met through something called Coalition 9. And uh, the way I view Coalition 9, it's nine professionals, some type of executives, business owners, attorneys that get together once a month and I feel kind of serves as your own advisory board or board of directors. Is that kind of how you would describe Coalition 9, Matt? Yes, I think that's how I would view it, and that's the model of the organization. It's that if you're in a leadership role in an organization, it can be a very lonely place, particularly if it's not a giant organization. And just having some good people who have been there and you know been through wars and you know dealt with you know employment issues and a variety of different issues just becomes invaluable. So it's to create that, you know, unity, create that tribe. That's kind of the mission of the organization. Yeah. So I already talked about Matt on the professional side. Matt on the personal side, how would I describe you, Matt? I would describe you as uh, focused, driven, somewhat of an overachiever, (laughs) (laughs) caring. You just had a daughter. How old is she? She is uh, almost exactly three months old. Yes, and you spoke very uh, softly and uh, caring of her, which I can appreciate. I'm I'm a father of two boys, so there's a soft spot in my heart for those little kids. And you're married and family man, and it sounds like you work a lot. And I feel your pain, man. You brought this up at one one time at Coalition Nine. It's difficult to find that work life balance. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, like some of the difficulties you're having with that, with a newborn and all? Uh, Certainly. Well, uh, lawyers and litigation attorneys are notorious for having limited control over their schedule because a a case gets in litigation, court deadlines start coming into play, and you don't have the ability to, you know, do things on your timeline. It's that there are deadlines or it's an adversarial process. So the other side is forcing things, forcing deadlines down on you. So by its very nature, it's hard to have control over your schedule. And then you add to that 
being a business owner. So I'm not just an attorney, business attorney, a litigator. I'm also a firm owner, a small business owner, and I deal with all of the challenges that any small business owner is going to have in terms of hiring and firing employees, dealing with benefits, dealing with you know 401k administration. And you don't have the same freedom to just take a pause, to take a parental leave, to take a vacation that you would if you're an employee because you're running the show. I mean, there's no one to ask permission for. Can I take a vacation? Can I take a personal day? You're asking permission to yourself and frequently you say no. That's the challenge. And, you know, when you have a new daughter, sometimes all you want to do is you want to be with her and you want to be at home and you want to be there for your wife. Uh, You want to be a good husband, you want to be a good father, but you can have major cases going, you can have issues going on in your business, and it's not always an option. So trying to maintain that balance is something that I always strive for, but you might ask my wife and she might say, I fail at that more than I succeed, but I'm always trying. <laughs> yes, well, I definitely can relate. I remember one earlier days of opening my insurance agency. Prior to that, I was a chiropractor, but In the early days of the insurance business, uh, I started off with some working capital. I was working sun up to sun down, man. And uh, every month I lost a little bit of money. And over a year and a half, I was down to my last $3,000 before I finally turned around. Now, you're an attorney and you make the big bucks, so you might not be experiencing that type of stress. But uh... <laughs> Well, uh, actually, earlier in my career, I had, uh, this is actually the second iteration of my own firm. I had it a first time about 10 years ago where I was doing other types of stuff, less end client representation. But I was in the exact same position you've been in, where I think it was literally $3,000 I had left in the bank and you know until yeah. a big opportunity came through. So I've definitely been on both sides of that. Yeah. A quick message from our sponsors. This podcast was brought to you by Minnesota Risk Partners, specializing in risk management and insurance services for Minnesota-based companies. Check them out at minnesotariskpartners.com. You know, um, at, at our last Coalition 9 meeting, topic of contracts and reviewing contracts and how things can be interpreted differently in the courtroom, fighting over the meaning of one word and how long that can kind of drag on for. Out of all areas of law, do you feel like contract, I don't know the proper term for this, contract review or contract litigation, is that something you do on a regular basis? That's something that I'm doing every day. And I mean, that's that's kind of an umbrella term. It's It's interesting that the more an attorney tries to explain the areas of law that they practice in, it's almost like the less you understand with that. <laughs> And uh, certainly that's that's foundational. That's going to be foundational to any type of thing that I do. And I know that there's there's almost this over-segmentation in terms of people are saying, I'm a litigator or I'm an advisory attorney, I'm a business attorney. At the end of the day, good attorneys are focused on facilitating business, facilitating you know what your aims are. That blends. That blends between, I mean, how do you look at getting contracts drafted, getting them to a place where they're practically going to be useful? What are you doing in terms of if there's a dispute? How do you enforce a contract? It all blends together. And I think that people don't always understand what a contract is. And that could be silly to say, But at the end of the day, what I often say with it is 
A contract means one of two things. It's either what the parties think that it means or what a judge says that it means. Mm. And it's really no more than that. So maybe a long answer to a short question, but contract and interpretation and you know fighting over provisions is going to be you know the foundation of a lot of areas of law. Yeah. Okay. So let's take it from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? Where'd you go to high school? And what'd you do right after high school? Uh, certainly. So I grew up on uh, kind of the east side of Minnetonka, not on the lake, uh, just kind of the Minnetonka-Hopkins border. Mm. I ended up going to Hopkins High School. I uh, grew up in a you know a legal family. My dad was a, a small firm owner. He was a personal injury attorney. I jokingly slash not so jokingly say he tried to train me from birth to be an attorney. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm getting cross-examined at the dinner table when I'm seven years old. And did so, you have siblings? Um, I did. I had uh, an older brother that it's interesting. Oftentimes you can have two brothers in a family and they're in different universes. And so, <laughs> Is that the case here? It is. My, my brother's uh, now he's a personal trainer. He's oh, a, I was going to guess an artist or something. Not not quite. Uh, he's he's actually an elite ultra marathon runner. He's one of the best in the country. He really? ran. Uh, he ended up winning the national championship at the hundred k distance a few years back. Hundred uh, k. What is that like? Fifty miles ish. That's sixty two miles. 62. And he averaged, I believe, it was six forty two mile pace. Oh, bro, is he like? Tall and skinny and weighs like 150 with legs that go up to his chin. Is he like built for it? That's exactly my brother. <laughs> you, you know him and you don't even know him. And yeah. So, yeah. He, and you're opposite. You're, you're a big buff dude. And uh, I think you said you used to compete in weightlifting or bench press or something. Yes. Yeah, just some bench press competitions, you know, nothing too formal. But uh, that was a big part of my life in my early 20s was uh, the goal to get twice my body weight, which, okay. which I got. And nice. just, Kept me mentally focused and driven towards a goal. So yeah, twice your body weight. Yeah, that that's that's heavy. I mean, did you wear the bench shirt and all that? You know, I got to the edge of where I would start doing that type of thing. Okay. Where you start hyper optimizing. Yeah, I mean, I'm always limited. I've got a little bit longer arms. I don't have quite as much of the barrel build, so sure. it uh, put a, a tight cap on what I could do as a bench presser. But uh, for a I while, I was. That was what I was all about. It's funny. I did a couple of bench press competitions when I was younger also. Now, it wasn't twice my body weight. I think my best lift was 350, and I probably weighed 210-ish. But there's some really strong dudes, and you'd look at them, and they just look like a normal guy walking down the street, and they're, they're lifting some serious weight. They can be deceiving. That's interesting that you say that, because actually 350 is my PR, too. Oh, really? Cool. So during high school, did you play uh, sports, football, or anything? That would have probably made more sense. Well, actually, I was kind of young to the party. I started school um, on the extreme earlier end, mm. so I was always the youngest one in my class. Do you feel like that, if you could redo that piece of it? Because I, I had this conversation with my uh, ex-wife regarding our kids. Do you, do you think it's kind of at your detriment to be the youngest in your classes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the time, I might have said no, but now looking back, well, like part of it is I didn't really mature physically until like after my senior year, the summer after my senior year. That's where I went from kind of being a twig to, you know, putting on some mass and yeah. thinking I was always sort of behind the curve, you know, socially or physically just because I started so early. So sure. now definitely I, I think I would have done things differently in hindsight. Were you a good student, a student? 
I I was I've you know I think as you've said it at the beginning I was I've always been a chronic overachiever yeah. so uh, yeah I was came from a family where that was beyond emphasized and getting a B was not really tolerated <laughs> and so it was a pretty intense upbringing. A B was celebrated in my household. <laughs> so right out of high school, you went straight to college then? I did. I was in an extreme rush to get through everything. I went to college to Carlson at the U in business school. I got through in, in three years, and then I went directly into law school. And I'll, wow. I'll still remember that uh, at law school orientation, there was an open bar, and I was 20 years old at the time. Wow. Like the youngest in the room, probably. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So you graduated from college at what age? And then what did you do right out of college? So I graduated from college at, would have been 19, I believe. Jeez, you're like uh, Doogie Howser. You're too young to remember. Do you remember that show? I, I do remember that, actually. <laughs> no, actually, I think I think it was 20. I'm trying to, you know, it's so many years ago now. But, uh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, in hindsight, I wish I would have slowed down a little bit more because yeah, there was it more. Yeah, plenty of time to start your career and get everything launched, although it also prevented me from building up as much debt. So I guess oh, sure. in hindsight, I'm glad about that. So that sense of urgency of getting college done and achievement in academics and bench press and that type of thing, do you feel like that was drilled into you by your your parents, maybe more so than your dad? Or where, where do you think that comes from? I think it was definitely drilled in by my parents. I think I was, like a lot of young men, maybe a little bit less focused, a little bit more drifty, but I had a very disciplinary in, environment. Mm. And it was not really tolerated to not give 100%, whether that was school or in school, I think you had said, uh, talked about sports. I did sports, but it was like cross-country running and, and track, yeah. which I did decent at because I worked hard and had a relatively good athletic baseline, but that's not what my body was meant to do. Mm. So I think anyone who's practiced in those areas can tell you that that's about as painful as you get as cross-country yeah. running. So yeah. that gives you a work ethic in a hurry. Oh, that's true. All right, so you graduate college like 19-ish, 20-ish, and then uh, then what? So I went to law school immediately after that, also at the University of Minnesota. I never had much of a desire to leave this state or um, experience new things. I know that's probably puts me in the minority as, you know, makes me a bit of an oddity, but, you know, I've loved Minnesota and never wanted to leave. So those were the only schools I really wanted to go to. Went through law school, had law school goal, and then what did you do right after law school? So law school went really, really well. I was uh, top of my class again in, in law school, but I had the either, well, at the time I'd look at it as misfortune, but now I look at it as fortune of graduating in 2008. So what that meant is that I had been told my entire life, you do well in school, the world is going to fall at your feet. Mm. But then 2008 hits, and all of a sudden, nobody's hiring. And it hit the legal profession as hard, if not harder, than just about anything else. So despite the fact that I have you know, this eye-popping resume and being a young, dumb kid, thinking that that's all that matters in life, right. I can't get a job to save my life. I'm you know almost through school, it wasn't until like the very, very end that I found a job and 
you know, not the super high paid, super fancy skyscraper type big firm job I was hoping for, but doing public interest work at a smaller firm, making a half or a third of what I ever thought I would make. So at the time it was a catastrophe, but now it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Interesting. So you weren't practicing the type of law you practice now at that first job as something completely unrelated? Well, yes and no. Uh, what it was is, so it was a firm that uh, did uh, public law, which is they represented cities, counties, and school district. They did general practice work, but for those types of entities. So mm. it's a generally applicable skill set, but you're representing public entities, so it's an excuse to pay you half as much. And the law you practice now, how would you describe it? And I know I read a little bit on your website, but how would you describe it? And is this kind of what your, I guess, you had in mind going through Carlson School of Business and then becoming an attorney? Yes. Now this is exactly what I want Good. want to be doing. So it's it's handling complex business and uh, banking disputes. I'll sometimes describe it as I handle things surrounding the finance transaction or you know business corporate transactions. So that involves a couple things. That involves front end work such as contract drafting, advisory work geared towards avoiding litigation or mitigating risk. That's probably a third of what I do. Two-thirds of what I do would be handling commercial litigation disputes, creditors' remedies work, which is collecting some money. Not, I'm not a collection shop, but there's a component of that. Or protecting rights, preserving lien rights, um, dealing with uh, you know secured parties and security interests and intercreditor disputes and a bunch of terms that I'm throwing out there at you. But you know the long and short of it is dealing with commercial disputes that result in litigation, and particularly when there's multiple parties that are asserting some type of secured interest. So a dispute between, you know, say like a bank and a mechanics lien holder, who has priority as to that particular security interest. So dealing with those types of disputes is a large part of what I do. So a lot of the listeners are contractors and manufacturers or related to that type of industry. And uh, a couple of things that I hear commonly when I talk to those business owners is issues with the labor market, can't find good employees, qualified employees, and materials, uh, shortage. Uh, they can't get what they need. So I would imagine it's becoming more and more difficult to remain profitable in today's market. From your point of view, uh, giving some maybe, I don't know what you want, free legal advice? <laughs> <laughs> um, what what would you recommend or what do you see on the horizon, uh, you know, coming down the pipeline regarding some of the difficulties these business owners are experiencing today? Uh, certainly. Well, one thing that I think people are going to see, whether you know maybe they have, maybe it's something that's on the horizon, is payment issues. Is issues with all of a sudden those invoices are starting to get 30, 60, 90 days past due. How are you going to get paid? Creditors remedies, dealing with maybe having issues with your mechanics liens, asserting and forcing mechanics lien, where maybe for years or a decade you haven't uh, had that be an issue. I think that that's going to be an issue just based on the fact that being in a hyperinflationary environment, being in an environment where 
commodities are increasing at such a fast rate. I mean, even that can, you know, those costs, even if you have the contractual ability, you know, as a contractor to pass that on, it's can your customer pay or will they pay? And all of a sudden, are you going to be in a scenario where you're not getting paid and you're having to enforce legal rights? So I think that that's going to be an issue. I think that we're going to, we're already starting to see an increase in bankruptcies and from everything, you know, I'm hearing that's going to be a major issue over the next 12 to 24 months. And are you positioned well for that? I mean, do I mean, do you even know what's going to happen if you're doing work for a customer and the customer declares bankruptcy? Are you protected? Are you going to get paid? These are all major issues for contractors in this day and age. Is that things you help with? That type of thing? That is uh, definitely the bread and butter of what I'm doing. Uh, since so many of my disputes end up veering in and out of bankruptcy and a key component of creditors remedies and protecting lien rights is bankruptcy and the threat of bankruptcy and being prepared for bankruptcy and i think for contractors in particular or you know for any parties but probably particularly for contractors it's a major issue what you're doing in terms of in proximity to bankruptcy. And the reason why is because I think most contractors are going to understand that they have mechanics lien rights. And you're thinking, okay, if there's non-payment, if there's if there's an issue that comes up, I can just assert my mechanics lien rights and you know I'm going to be good to go. But the problem with it is, is how that interplays with bankruptcy. Because essentially, in order to have an interest that is survives and is recognized in bankruptcy, mm -hmm. it has to basically be perfected prior to the bankruptcy filing. So it's not like, okay, you're, you're going along doing work for a, a customer, they declare bankruptcy and, okay, well, that's a problem. I'm going to record mechanics lien at that point. It's too late at that point. You would have needed to have done that prior to the bankruptcy filing. Oh. And if you don't, you're a general unsecured creditor that's probably going to be getting 10 cents on the dollar of what you're owed, if not less, versus if you saw the trouble was on the horizon. And you How would they know that though? Well, sometimes it's Sometimes it's apparent, sometimes it's not apparent. I mean, yeah. sometimes I think late that payments, you know, late payments are probably going to be the number one thing. If you see a newspaper article about if it's a larger customer that's starting to struggle financially, if you've been talking with them and you're getting the sense that, you know, things are going a little bit rough for them, that could all be something that is going to be a red flag that it's coming. But and if I'm the contractor and you are the client building a multi million dollar structure, do contracts ever read where I would have the right to review your financial statements to make sure I'm protected? You know, upon request, your financial statements are provided to me within two weeks. Is that ever a thing? Of course. Yeah. Um, it's just that that's rarely going to be put in a contract okay. like okay. that. But sure. if it's in terms of a financing contract, like, you know, bank loan agreement, you can contractually agree to whatever you want. You can certainly yeah. put in there and it's, you know, it's a good idea to consider putting in there something related to um, the ability to review financials, request financials, default upon a general insecurity because at the end of the day, it's one thing that's tough is if you're afraid that they're going to declare bankruptcy, but they're paying their bills. Mm. So you're not going to necessarily have the right to do that. So yeah. trying to protect yourself from that vantage point. Although typically, 
before bankruptcy, there's going to be non-payments. So I think that in a bankruptcy-rich environment, it's just being very, very cautious about that and being very proactive with your mechanics liens. And yes, you're given 120 days under the law after the, you know, the last work is performed to record your mechanics lien. But do you want to wait that long? If mm. you're getting a sense that this company is going under or it's an environment where there's going to be bankruptcies, you're going to be wanting to record the mechanics liens far earlier because one day too late could be the difference between getting full payment and getting nothing. Scary, man. I bet there's a lot of business owners that don't know that. Right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one thing is that the bankruptcy, bankruptcy is this kind of big, scary unknown that no one, you know, it seems like a lot of business, well, everyone has heard the word before, but not everyone understands how it works. And I don't think people realize that once it happens, there's something that's called the automatic stay, which is status quo is completely frozen. You can't be perfecting things. You can't be taking collection action. If you get a bankruptcy notice, do not send out that default notice. Don't bring a lawsuit. You can get severely sanctioned if you try to do that. That's a hard freeze on everything. That's a hard freeze on any type of um, collection or lien perfection or anything like that. So it's a harsh world because the second that hits, if your ducks are not in a row, you might lose all your ducks. Yeah, man. So this makes me think of one of my clients. They are a manufacturing company and uh, plastics, but they produce the raw material of plastic to other plastic manufacturing companies, right? And I was talking to the founder, president, and, uh, you know, he was a um, little disgruntled with one of his clients that they, they were behind several million dollars in ARs. Hmm. And uh, he was struggling on what to do next. But and I imagine in this type of situation, if I'm building a twenty million dollar structure and you're a contractor, maybe you do the framing or foundation work. You're one of the earlier contractors on the job, and you got a million or two stuck into my project, and I claim bankruptcy early on. It's like I don't know. Like, where's that money going to come from? How are you going to get paid that million or two if it's early on in the project? I mean, they could try to sell the land type thing and what's been completed so far, but. Uh, I imagine that'd be a, a difficult situation to be in as a contractor. That's exceptionally difficult. And it it's dealing with something that not everyone has fully conceptualized, which I, I think there's this this way of viewing things that I'm owed money, that's that's my money, that's what I'm entitled to. The law, particularly in an insolvency type situation, doesn't agree with you. Yeah. It's you might be, yeah, you might be owed the money, but in terms of what you can collect, it you know could be pennies on the dollar, and that's why in the area, I mean, it's easy to want to operate off a hand uh, under a handshake and trust, but in terms of when things actually go into default, when things actually go wrong, the person it's you know you can't get blood out of a stone. It's yeah, like the that's person the person might be the most honorable person you've ever dealt with in their life. But they may, you know, have, you know, a million dollars in assets and owe $10 million. And yeah. then then what what are you going to do at that point? You're just going to throw your hands up. And so that's something that people have trouble with and is dealing with that reality and, you know, dealing with 
what it means and how to navigate around it. And that's why this amorphous, ill-defined term of you know creditors' remedies and perfection and things like that, it goes from being not at all important to someone to being absolutely critically important. And like with your manufacturing client, like it's, are you secured in some way? Is it like through a statutory lien, like a mechanics lien, or are you taking a security interest? Like you're selling product, you're manufacturing items. Are you take as part of your contract, are you taking a security interest in the work that you're doing? Yeah. That can be something that's a little bit hard to understand. Or is there rights to lock it down upon a default because you can say it's like okay well I'm I'm doing work on your I'm manufacturing something for you and then you don't pay me it's like okay well I'm just not going to give you the thing that I've manufactured well do you have the contractual right to do that do you have a security interest in it because there's probably a financing lender that has a security interest in the item that you now don't want to release and so do you get sued by maybe multiple different parties just for saying, hey, I'm not going to release your product that you haven't paid for? It's a world that, I mean, people don't think about it until it actually starts to come up. All right, let's see. To wrap things up, what, what, can you t- tell the listeners a little bit, a more broad overview of what you could possibly help them with? What are a couple other things that you uh, do a lot of? Well, one of the things that I enjoy a lot is getting policies and procedures into place. I mean, so often I, you know, people come to me when there's some major war that started. It's, you know, mistakes have been made, and, you know, the battle lines have been drawn and, you know, help me out of this mess. Someone maybe they've been sued, maybe they need to sue, and it's 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 a giant war, but that's not where I prefer, where I love to get involved is I love to get involved in terms of, you know, the the ounce of prevention yeah. piece of things. Drafting policies, drafting procedures, coming through with are your contracts, are your standard documents, are your procedures, are they tight? Are they, are they flawed? Is there an issue with it? You know, what can you be doing to make sure you're in the best position? What types of financials are you able to request? Are you seeking with this? You know, how can you have it positioned in terms of so you're going to be successful? You're, so you're not going to have to call me. But that the clients who utilize those services almost always are glad that they do. But it's it's the type of thing that it's hard. I mean, it's people go to the dentist oftentimes because they've got some major tooth problem and they got to you know get a root canal and stuff rather than you know doing that work paying money and dealing with the pain on the front end. Yeah, going, you know, twice a year, get your cleanings done so that type of thing doesn't happen. Right? Exactly. And so you you almost always are glad that you do it, but in terms of it's 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 hard psychologically. Sure. It's you're going to somebody who's going to charge you money. You know, probably you'll think it's an exorbitant fee. It's yeah, even it's if it's take time and it probably never it, happen. So. Probably never happen. And yeah. it's you know, some guy is sitting there telling you how to do your business and how to draft your contracts, and yeah. you know, can rub people the wrong way. So that's where I. But if you get over that hurdle, I think you generally are glad that you did. Yeah. But yeah. you know, that's 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 the issue that you run into. So. You know, long maybe a long answer to a short question. I very much enjoy you know front end work, and then 
I really enjoy also on the other end of the spectrum where things have gone so far awry that it's going to be some major undertaking that it's going to require a lot of creativity. It's maybe going to require some types of unusual causes of action to make you whole. And that's been a major part of my career is taking some of the very hardest cases and the very hardest disputes that people are thinking, well, you know, I guess I got to wave bye-bye to that and finding a way of making them whole or close to it. Now, with today's marketplace, I uh, I imagine there's going to be more and more mergers and acquisitions. The three small guys might merge together or one of the small guys might get bought out by a big guy. And uh, do you deal with mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, that is something that I'll semi-regularly handle in terms of either documentation or in terms of litigating deals that go south. And I've seen both in equal measure. And it really sharpens what you look at with these things. And it gives you a a good sense of where the pressure points are. And that tends to tie with the creditor's remedies piece of things, just in terms of the issues of seller financing and holdbacks and things of that nature. It's If there's going to be a dispute, it tends to be with money. And it's easy to think, well, you know, it's it's a sale. We're we're getting it done. It's well, if there's any amount of money that can change hands in the future, whether it's an earnout, whether it's seller payments over time, it's the question of, well, what if they don't? What if they don't make that payment and are you protected? So I found that that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where you got to be particularly careful. Yeah, you and I spoke about that on an unrelated case, but uh, I mean, you you put the scenario by me where, let's say, I owe you, okay, I owe you a million dollars for uh, I purchased your business, right? And that's the part that you're financing that I'm making payments to you. I paid two million, I gave you fifty percent up front, but I still owe you fifty percent, so I still owe you a million dollars. And there there are buyers out there that will do the math of okay. If I just stop paying Matt his million and I hire an attorney or a team of them, that might cost me a hundred grand. And then we'll probably get to settle and in courts and maybe I'll owe him, you know, two hundred grand in the settlement. So now I'm into the deal, three hundred grand. Well, that's a seven hundred thousand dollars savings, right? Yeah. There's there's people out there like that. There are people that like that, and <laughs> you know, it's that's definitely it's you know not my kind of people that that are like that, but some people will do that, and there are really heavy users of legal services that have found out that exact thing. They will pay an exorbitant amount of money to attorneys on a regular basis because they will use them to bully and improve their position and it's the thing with it is is it's both wrong and not wrong because it's wrong in the sense that I don't think that's the right way to operate. But it's correct in the sense that people look at money like money when, no, it's a claim, it's a dispute. It's what I said earlier that what is a contract? It's what the parties think it is or what a judge says that it is. And you think, well, we have a contract, I'll, I'll take you to court. It's like, well, what if there's one, like I've had two dozen cases in my career that have centered exclusively on the meaning of one word in a contract. So Crazy. you've got a smart enough lawyer, creative enough lawyer, they'll find some reason. We'll say, you say, well, I'm owed a million dollars. It's like, well, you didn't do X, Y, or Z. 
or there's ambiguity, or this one word here, you know, gives us an argument that we don't have to pay you, or disputing the amount owed, and we got to go in front of a judge and litigate this for a year to determine what it is, and we're going to come up with some ridiculous claims against you in the process, and then all of a sudden your head is spinning, you're paying attorneys, and they say to you, it's like, okay, well, we'll write you a check for $250,000 to make it all end. And pretty soon it's like, okay, I'll just, I guess that that makes sense. And if you haven't properly protected yourself on the front end, then, or or what if, or what if they, what if they declare bankruptcy again? So you've got it in there and they declare bankruptcy and you say, well, I'm owed a million dollars. I sold you the business here. And it's like, okay, well, do you have a security interest? Well, no, I, I, but it's, it was my business. Yeah. Okay, so you're a general unsecured creditor and you're going to get 10 cents on the dollar for what's owed? And your head's spinning like, well, how did that happen? It's yeah. because you had somebody on the other side being incredibly crafty and opportunistic when you were operating under a handshake, you know, my word is my bond type of thing. And it's a no good deed, no honorable way of looking at things goes unpunished situation yeah. sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. The uh, Doogie Hauser of law. <laughs> and uh, Matt, I appreciate it, man. So, you know, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. I, I think your heart's in the right place. I think you're a super smart dude that you have a lot going for you. That uh, overachievement type mentality is going to serve you well on the professional side of things. And you seem like a very caring father. And uh, I hope good things happen to you, man. So if you want to let the listeners know how they can reach out to you if they have any questions or if they want to schedule a consultation of some sort, uh, you want to throw out your contact information, Matt? Uh, Certainly. And I, I will say at the onset here, I'm not a bizarre stickler when it comes to this. I love to talk to people. I'm happy to answer questions and work things through. You're not going to get some random bill in the mail when we're just having a phone call. So one of my favorite things to do is to talk with people and to try to help. Obviously, that's not without limits, but that's what I love to do. If you want to reach out to me, you can call me. My number is 952-239-3095. Alternately, you can email me at Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, at M-J-B-L-A-W-M. N, all one word, dot com. I will say that I'm a little bit more limited in terms of the advice that I can give over email because I have to be concerned ethically with, you know, am I providing legal advice to someone who's not a client? Mm-hmm. You know, am I giving written guidance? But in terms of just trying to schedule something or get on the phone or just make initial inquiries, feel free to, you know, reach out, feel free to call me, always happy to talk. And if you're looking for a little bit more information, you know, Go to my website, www.mjblawmn.com. That's mjblawmn.com. So, like I said, love talking to people. Feel free to always reach out. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. You did a great job. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And uh, everybody have a good one. That's it, guys. If you know of a Minnesota business leader or a mover and shaker that you feel would be a great guest, please have them go to minnesotamadepodcast.com and have them apply for the show. Thanks for listening, Minnesota.